Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. again everyone you're very welcome to this week's group chat gavin is here richard is here uh zara is here zara Hello. you're back you're away I'm last back. week i'm back i'm alive <laughs> i've been very sick i've yeah. actually had an awful dose to be honest um lots of people have had a dose so i don't mind saying it loads of people messed me saying they've had a dose i got the flu like the actual flu i haven't had the actual flu in a long time i can't actual I, flu is rough. i'm not actual sure if i horrific. had it twice i'm not sure if i actually have ever had the actual flu the actual I'd flu say you'd, you'd know it if you did have it yeah. which is why i don't think i have yeah yeah it was brutal i got the actual flu and a chest infection so i mean i'm lucky to be alive here today actual flu and a chest infection and then of course you come back and all of our colleagues are speculating do you think you have pneumonia oh yeah so, yeah the whole yeah. newsroom thinks i have pneumonia now mm. but look we're here anyway so, so if Zara's missing surprised. next yeah. week you'll all know why uh, we're going to start with uh, the cost of living which is something that Obviously, we've, we've naturally discussed a lot uh, in the last two years they've been doing this because it's it's two years, of course, this week since the start of the war in Ukraine, which kickstarted a lot of the inflation we've seen in the last couple of years. Uh, there's a new word, though, in the lexicon that I hadn't seen until uh, the last couple of days. I think you put this on our rich, uh, running order, Richard. What is a vibe session? Yes, the vibe session is a term which economists in the States popularised initially. And it is basically the feeling that people, ordinary people in the country have about the state of the economy, that it's bad, that the cost of living crisis is still biting them, that they don't have as much confidence to spend as much money on things, that they are having to cut back and to save on things. And all of this, despite the fact that the key economic indicators that would point to the strength of the economy are moving in the right direction. So all the headline stuff is all great. The economy is growing. There's more people at work. Earnings are all going up. So on the face of it, you look at it in the abstract, everything should be rosy in the garden. Yes. And despite that, it really isn't. Now, traditionally around this time of year, we'd actually find that that's when consumer confidence does take a slide and that has been borne out in the figures recently because it's that post-Christmas period where people have a lot of new bills, for example. Mm. They've had the expensive Christmas, so January and February are the toughest months generally for households to get mm. through. Mm. It's also potentially why you mightn't have a general election in January or February because gloomy, gloomy, mm -hmm. economically as well as in the weather and in terms of Except daylight hours. for the last three. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the last so three of them were all in February, there you which go. is why they all went great for the but, existing government. So this is the thing. The vibe session is the fact that the public feels their financial situation has gotten worse over the past year, despite relative improvements in the economy. So this is something which is being felt not just in Ireland, even though we have very you know, strong indicators that, that you know, the economy is moving in the right direction, mm. but people are not feeling that and they're having to cut back in many, many different ways. Which is a remarkable timing then, given that, Zara, we also mm -hmm. had this week a new cost of living report from Barnardo's. And you, sometimes you get these reports and... and you almost sort of see them as par for the course. Some of what they find is dreadful, but that they, you're not terribly shocked by them. I was really shocked by yes, the headline figure of 
the volume of parents that are skipping meals so that their kids can eat. Yes. Yeah, so I was really stunned by this. Yeah, so this is the Bernardo's food insecurity report and basically the findings show that around 40% of parents are either going without a meal or they're having a smaller portion in order to feed their children. Uh, they also show that a quarter of parents have had to borrow money to feed their children. So one of the things that comes up when you kind of break down the figures and look at it in terms of analysis is the question about whether people had perhaps been surviving on savings for the last little while since mm. the cost of living crisis kicked in. So maybe people did have perhaps a little bit of money possibly left over from saving during COVID or whatever and that they had been able to dip into those savings. And actually, you know, when we had Natalie Britton in here last year and she was talking about the cost of living crisis for her family, she had actually said at the time that her family were, were surviving off their savings. She had, if people remember that episode, had come back from Hollywood. They were living in LA, uh, renting in LA and they had come home uh, to Ireland to try and settle here. And at the time, she was talking about the fact that uh, existing and living in Ireland in terms of renting and groceries and everything, mm. that they were relying a lot on their savings. Um so yesterday I asked people uh, on Instagram to co- get in touch and tell us what exactly they're doing in terms of that cost of living sacrifice. And so many people um, came through and said that they are really, you know, cutting back on things that they used to have, you know. But I mean, it's things like some people are talking about the fact they're cutting back on things like their mental health supports, like their therapy sessions, that they they can't afford to go to therapy anymore. That they're that's extremely having, common. That's actually, extremely yeah. common. Yeah. That that's And that's such a big part of people's sense of well-being and mm. mental health. Mm. Um someone here saying not being able to go to the doctor I'm only taking my kids now um, someone saying I'm no longer able to buy anything beyond hygiene products for myself there just simply is no money Um you know, a lot of people saying, actually, look, my independence is gone. I've had to move back home in my 30s and things like that. But I would say that the feedback that we're getting from people definitely echoes what we're seeing in that Bernardo's report. Um, you know, and Richard, I would say, you know, some people might think that cost of living had levelled out and the government will say they've put supports in place and we heard about the cost of living budget. But actually, the lived experience of people is quite different. It is, yeah. And this is why, you know, despite the fact that, as the government would point to, inflation is slowing across the Eurozone at this point in time. Like, if you look at grocery bills, they're still on an average level, they're at their highest level that they've been mm. in the best part of two decades. And that's not just an, an Irish problem, that's a European and it's an international problem at this point in time. So there was a study which was done which actually focused in on the Vibe session thing last year by Amoric Research. I think uh, Primark or, or Pennies was actually involved in that as well as one of the sponsors for it. Um, 71% of adults eating out are getting takeaways less. Uh, almost half of households cancelled an entertainment subscription, for example, Sky or Netflix, mm. one of these sort of things as well. And almost two thirds of shoppers have switched to a more affordable grocery retailer so going then towards the discounts whereas they might have gone to I don't know Duns or mm. Super Value in, in the past so people are treating themselves less people are very much scrimping and saving to try and turn this around as much as possible to try yeah. and get in control of their, their household savings now there's a key problem with all of that and this is where it comes into a, both a political and a societal issue, is that when you have governments at the top of it who are trying to point to the good economic indicators, and that happens here in Ireland, it also happens in the States, where Joe Biden is trying to get re-elected based on the strength of an economy which people don't see and feel. But then you have people like uh, Gary Pilnick, who's a lad whose name I don't think any of... He's not a household mm, name. No, but not. his products, which he sells, are very much a household products. He is the CEO of the Kellogg's Corporation. He was asked on CNBC... Uh, the other day about how his company is dealing with the cost of living crisis. Here's what he had to say. In general, the cereal category is a place that a lot of folks might come to because the, the price of a bowl of cereal with, with milk and with fruit is less than a dollar. So you can imagine why a consumer under pressure might find that to be a good place to go. Right. I'm all for innovation and marketing, but the idea of having cereal for dinner, um, is there the potential for that to land the wrong way? 
Uh, we don't think so. In fact, it's landing really well right now, Carl. When we look at all of our data, of course, we would know that breakfast cereal is the number one choice for in-home consumption. We understand that for breakfast. It turns out that over 25% of our consumption is outside the breakfast occasion. A lot of it's at dinner, and that, that occasion continues to grow, as well as the snacking occasion. But um, cereal for dinner is something that is, is probably more on trend now, and we would expect to continue as that consumer is under pressure. That the grinning face there of, of Gary Pilnick, the CEO of WK Kellogg. Uh, cereal my, for dinner. My producer was just saying that he gets $5 million a year. So it's well he, for him to Yeah, he's his base salary of $1 million per year and four, more than $4 million in incentives. So very tone-deaf approach. And even the fact that CNBC... He's describing it as on-trend is the tone-deaf part that, of it That was well. grinning and dystopian yeah. sentence I think I've heard in the two years of this podcast. That cereal for dinner is a growing occasion. And it's something that we can see getting even bigger. Like, it's like the time your your mom in the 90s was on the Special K diet and they were telling people to have Special K all day. Um, I mean, look, I, I think it's totally, as you say, Richard, detached from the reality that people are, are dealing with at the moment. I just want to read you a few more of the comments that we got from people. One person who said, um, you know, I am lucky to be earning decent money, but things are so expensive. Uh, things that were normal treats before are now a privilege. Privilege privileges for me now include electricity and turning the heating on when I'm working from home during the day. Uh, another girl said, I'm 30, I'm on 88,000 euro a year and I am living at home with my parents. Like I can't find somewhere to rent. Again, this is a lot of this is rooted in housing, I would say, a lot of the mm -hmm. feedback here. Someone else said, I'm living between my van, my mum's spare room and a mate's couch, two degrees and rent is just far too high. Um, another person says, basically just paying bills with nothing else left afterwards. I am using my savings, but they won't last much longer, says another person. Um, 26 years old and still at home with a full-time job and can only move to a house share at a very, very stretch. So, like, I think it's, like, it's reflected. I think it's interesting, like, Michael McGraw was asked about this yesterday when he's going into Cabinet, and he was saying that he's surprised that people haven't, you know, taken up the sort of cost of living measures that are in place by government. But like Bernardo's then would say as a counterpoint to that, that actually, you know, the way you have to go about applying for help, you know, the way every community has a local, yes, um, yeah. a, a local representative for, for, um, for it's like a local welfare officer. Welfare officer, welfare sorry, officer, yes, yeah. that's it. Local welfare officer and you go to your local welfare officer and you fill in the paperwork and you, you know, outline mm. your need. Like these things are so slow, like everything, it takes ages. And, you know, like the point that Bernard is making yesterday is actually, you know, it's great to have the supports there, but they just need to be far more accessible. Like you can't actually be in a situation where people are having to fill out reams and reams of paperwork and then yeah. finding out after the fact that they can't get access well, to like, what they need. A question that immediately raises for me is like, what what measures is he referring to? Like, is he talking about the renter's tax credit? Because and we've discussed on, on this podcast before, the difficulty that some people have in trying to claim the renter's tax credit mm. because if it's a rent room situation or if their landlord is not registered with the RTB then it's very difficult to actually access that. You can't just pop on the revenue website and try to claim it if you're if your your tenancy isn't registered. So it's a really tricky thing to get to the bottom of. Mm. There's one other point that I think is, is worth making about all of this. We've heard a lot about inflation coming down and people expecting prices to come down. And that's kind of led by coverage about utility bills. You know, you see different energy providers engaged in something of a price war because the wholesale prices are coming down. When we talk about inflation coming down, what it means is that prices aren't rising as fast as they used to. It doesn't mean the prices are coming down. Yeah, And that's a, th a point that I think a lot of people gloss over, that if inflation falls back to the 2% that everyone would like it to be, everyone thinks, oh, life goes back to being as affordable as it was in 2019 or 2020. But no, it, it means that the, the price rises of the last couple of years are now baked in and you're hoping that 
social welfare allowances or your private sector wage help you catch up with that. But there's no guarantee they will. Yeah, and there's that thing which some economists would, would point to as well, is when you have had the impact of inflation over the last number of years and the cost of living crisis, it becomes then like sort of trying to turn a ship around. Mm. That when you're, you know, seeing the slowing impact of inflation, you have baked in drop in living standards at this point in time because of the economic and the financial hit that everybody's taken into their pockets, households around the country. And to try and then improve and bring things back up it takes a long time. So even as things are improving and household incomes are projected to rise this year, but still because of that lagging impact of all of this, the, the, the suffering and the saving that people have had to do over the last multiple years, it's still going to take time before people feel that they're even back to that level that they were at before. Mm. Yeah, another lady says, I'm a middle income earner, no new clothes for myself and my husband, we go without so that we can clothe our kids. So you can clothe your so kids. So you can clothe your kids. Sit in the cold all day and only put the heat on when my son is at home and in the evening. Sorry, and eat cereal actually. Sorry, there, I didn't see that one before. Now that's someone saying that they eat cereal in the evenings. Um, you know, like I think, like the thing is, I think, as you said, Richard, household incomes are expected to rise, but then people aren't actually probably saving at the moment and they're relying on those savings. I think we're just going to end up finding ourselves caught in a bit of a pinch point towards the end of the year, which I think is going to be an enormous pressure for the upcoming budget this year, Gavin, in terms yeah. of how they're going to handle that. And, and long story short, that's the budget that everyone expects to be the last big gambit before a general election. So if we're talking about don't go to the public in February because everyone is a bit broke and new taxes might have kicked in in February, you know, there's, there's a good argument that by the tail end of the year, if the budget doesn't immediately land for people, that their savings are already wearing so thin that it could be very, very lean pickings by the time the country comes around to voting again. So we have to talk about RTE, uh, but in truth, I don't know where to start about RTE because it seems like last week, Richard, we were here and we were talking about Kevin Backhurst maybe being dragged into it or that he might have been the big bad bogeyman in Montrose seven days ago. Because a lot of water going under the bridge seats in there, isn't there? Yeah, and I feel like there's almost a risk that whenever we talk about RT on a podcast that it becomes out of date within a matter of 24 hours. So expect that to happen with this podcast. Um, But I mean, obviously the talking point this week has been, I mean, after Catherine Martin did a primetime interview last week on television, she had a primetime of sorts grilling this week in the Oireachtas Media Committee, um, which you were across last night, Gav. And I mean, I suppose... The key question was really with regards to this meeting of the of the committee was whether or not she would do enough to sort of co- cover her own back in terms yeah. of projecting confidence in her ability to get to the bottom of the, of the scandal. Do you think that she actually did enough in that regard? Yes, in a weird way, um, because I think, long story short, I think after the marathon meetings on Tuesday night, there are now some questions for her or questions about her but they are questions about it, kind of a slightly different thing to what they were when they were going in. So at the start of the meeting, everyone was like, why did you go on television? Did you basically sack the chair on television? You know, why did you go about it in the way you did? And actually the way in which Catherine Martin accounted for herself about the issues with Junior Alex's, you know, approaches and, and accounts to her in the last couple of days were, were quite robust. I mean, if you look at it, long story short, I mean, and we should say as a precursor, Everyone has nice things to say about Junie Radling. She was a very, uh, you know, well-minded person. No ill intent or no bad motives about accidentally misleading the minister. Everyone accepts that she was public service broadcasting to its core. But we do have a situation where the minister saw something in the papers the weekend before last, called Junie Radling in on Monday and said, is it true? June said, no. She was speaking to her again on Wednesday and said, is it true? She said, no. And then she had to ring up the department on Thursday morning to go, actually, I'd forgot. It is true. And I chaired that meeting where we signed off on Richard Collins' exit package, which which does genuinely beg a question of confidence. And when the chair of RTE is the minister's go-to point person, the only interface between RTE and the government is this person, and you can't trust that they're always giving you the full story, 
then there is a genuine question of of confidence. And that means that, you know, the minister rightly raising concern about that last week, even if she might have been over public, the substance of her doing that was right. Yeah, and I think that's something. So obviously, Catherine Martin has attracted a huge amount of criticism since this controversy mm-hmm. began eight months ago at this point in time. But with regards to how she interacts with Shuni Rahalik, uh, the chair of the RT board, former now chair of the RT board, I mean... <sighs> There's been a, this isn't the first time this happened where there was a question in terms of information being passed no. on promptly and correctly mm. from the chair of the board to the minister. There was, there was of course, even a situation around when D Forbes uh, stepped down as the director general of RTE and whether or not this would be passed on. So, I mean, that that is that is something which is key to the whole the whole question mark around it. Now, there was a key revelation last night in terms of the order of how things transpired yeah. with regards to Shuni Rahali, and that was how Shuni Rahali responded to a potential letter being written by Catherine Martin, basically outlining her concerns about mm. the misinformation as she saw it. So why does that timeline matter and why is that in, is it significant? Uh, the reason that matters is because it then raises the other questions for Catherine Martin about her own sense of political judgment or even her own antennae for seeing if there is a problem coming down the line. So... Catherine Martin had apparently agreed as long ago as last Tuesday morning that she was going to go on primetime on Thursday night. And it wasn't with any new scandal or new development in mind. It was just a case of, I am the minister responsible for reforming the TV licence. We're coming towards the end of that progress and I, I want to talk about it. And that's apparently what it was. But of course, in the meantime, these disputes between Juni Raleigh and you know whether she was giving the full picture or not comes up. Catherine Martin, having discovered that she had been misled and therefore, by the way, gone to a press conference last week where I and others were questioning her and she was repeating back things that Shuni Raleigh had told her, which weren't true. She wants to follow up on that. She wants to send Shuni Raleigh a letter. She wants to have a meeting. She wants to try and clear clear the air on all of this. She, the one thing that's worth stressing is that she said that she basically doesn't consider this to have been a resigning matter. That yes, it was very mortifying, but that Shuni Raleigh was still, broadly speaking, the right person for the job, was doing really good reforms in RTE and would rather she'd stayed there. And yet we have a situation where she, we now find out as a result of last night's committee meeting, Shuni Raleigh was basically going to resign if she received a written scolding from Catherine Why? Martin. Like, that's something I find hard to get my head around is like, why was she so bet into the decision? It's like, well, look, you're going to write me a letter or if you're going to ask for a meeting, mm. I'm going to resign. She, I don't fully was, understand Do you that. think she was fatigued by the entire process at this point though there as was well? One little, there actually was one little hint of that because it's worth bearing in mind that the job of being chair of RTE is not a full-time role. Uh, it pays a, a stipend of 31,000 a year so it's not considered to be anyone's full-time gig. You're supposed to be able to juggle other duties on the side and Sheena Raleigh having already been in with the minister twice that week there was a, an implication from Catherine Martin's evidence that she really wasn't up for or couldn't make herself available to do it a third time. But nonetheless, you'd think given the circumstances, there at least might have been the opportunity for a phone call or a Zoom call or just some kind of direct interaction between the minister and the chair. Two meetings a week for 30 grand a year isn't like that unreasonable, is it? It's, it's, it's not really. The, the scale of the, the controversy and the scandal, because the Irish Times over the weekend, um, they were they they wrote about how members, current members of the board are you know, upset and, you know, very downhearted at mm. how this whole thing has transpired and the fact that Shun is no longer in the gig. Mm. But like, like... Last Friday, there was even talk that they might have all walked out themselves. But like, why so? Because it was her decision to walk out based on the fact that she, that the minister was just going to write a letter saying that she was concerned about mm. this. Like, she wasn't going to be forced, forced marched out of the job. It's only when... Well, yeah. this is, it's all open to interpretation. In fact, we also mm-hmm. need to hear Shuni Raleigh's side of the story. But the fact is, from what the minister said last night... Um, the minister didn't think that Junior Ali had to go no. at all. Uh, it was mortifying, but it wasn't a resigning matter, yeah. basically. Shun told her, 
um, I'm going to probably go if you t- write letter writing out your yeah. concerns and then so if, if you scold me in writing so strange if you scold me in writing I'm going to go Catherine Martin said that basically she was hoping these aren't her exact words but she was effectively <laughs> hoping that Junior Ali might cool off a little bit or that mm. there was a certain level of, of frenzy to all of this and that if she just took a moment or agreed to you know just hold your horses for a little bit and let's meet on Friday morning maybe we can smooth all this over and that we'll realise that it's not the, the end of the world basically uh, but nonetheless, the minister knows that Junior Ali might resign if she gets a scolding in writing. Okay. And as push comes to shove later that day, she sends her one. And also, by the way, communicates to Junior Ali saying, go on and tell you later this evening, there's a good chance this might come up. And if it comes up, I'm going to have to be honest. Which is almost effectively a coded way of saying, I'm going to have to dump on you in television. Which is very inconsistent with the idea that you're trying to smooth it all over and that you don't want her to walk out the door. And then what's more, and this is the really, really crucial bit, the story about Shuni Raleigh having accidentally misled uh, Catherine Martin and all the others had not yet broken at that time. But apparently, as the minister was arriving out to Donnybrook to appear on primetime last week, her press officers start getting phone calls about it because some other media outlets have gotten wind of the story. And they, they reckon it's going to break shortly enough anyway. So apparently, as a courtesy to Ortee, to Miriam McCallaghan and the primetime crew, the minister basically gives them the story, says, right, this, this is going to come out soon. And, you know, I don't want you guys to sort of feel like you're suddenly caught in the hop by someone else reporting a story Mm -hmm. breaking. So here I am giving you the story. And if you'd like to ask me about it, I'm open to that. Which in anyone else's mind would be handing them the stick with which to beat you in your own. In many ways, actually, I think like it would be more prudent for them to try and get it out without the production team having any copper idea of what was going on. Yeah. Obviously yeah. unfortunate for the production team, but like but you know, the idea of handing the story over is... I think that the, the issue, there's an issue with Catherine Martin in that one of the biggest criticisms she's faced throughout the whole thing is that she hasn't been available for interview, that she hasn't mm. been transparent. Mm. And if her digging in and saying, well, I can't back out of going on RTE now is a question of transparency and being as open with the public about this, especially when the issue at hand is about misinformation, transparency and getting Mm -hmm. full facts out there. I lied to the media on Monday, so now it turns out I better go clear the record. There's an argument for going ahead. And if the story is going to be out there, possibly on the Indo website later on that evening, like, I mean, it's going to be a bit weird if if she doesn't mention it at all or it it comes out afterwards, having sat through the interview on primetime. So Mm -hmm. I can sort of see it. And this isn't to absolve the minister for criticism because like there is a lot of criticism pointed at her and how she's handled this and how soft she has been at different times throughout it. So I look. Can I just, can I ask you both just in terms of like, what does it actually mean bigger picture though? Because like, obviously this is about, you know, the the back and forth between Shun and the minister and Mm. all, but like, I suppose like ultimately we're just to get a step back for a second and kind of look at what does it mean for the broader investigation into what's happening in Orti and where will we go from here? Like, what does it actually mean? Well, see, I, I think it, that, that much has kind of run into the ground. So there's still a couple of more reports the government has commissioned about mm. culture and governance. They're due back in the next couple of weeks. That delayed might lay, as well. That, they're delayed as well, yeah, by a couple of weeks. That might lay the place for the government to make final decisions about reform of the licence fee. But when you park the, the kind of the drama around Catherine Martin's own handling of this, then you're getting into the weeds. The other outstanding thing between the department and RTE is... And I appreciate these are very, really dense wording, by the way, and people are going to find this to be a really tedious way of summarising the story. But the route boils down to whether RTE adequately and clearly communicated to the government that the terms of reference for a subcommittee of the board dealing with the pay of senior presenters and senior management had been adequately communicated and that the department therefore knew that the new role of directors included signing off on exit pay for senior executives. How do you remember that? Like, I With great difficulty because we've all been talking about it for two weeks okay, basically. Right. But that's how dense it is. I think you've lost me. So there's a good chance that, that even people have fallen asleep hearing that now in the last couple of minutes which is why right. that bit has kind of run into the ground which is then why we're left with a separate thing of like well does Catherine Martin 
know what she's doing or okay. how good is her political judgment. But the point is, it's a different story to the one we had this time yesterday. Okay, where is Kevin Backhurst in all this? That's the man the who's managing the crisis. Like, yeah. where is he? Well, there is a question mark about him now, and this is something which people in the committee r- r- raised last night, and that they, I think it was about three people on the committee said that they didn't have confidence in him as Director mm-hmm. General, based on the fact that he was in meetings with Shuni Raleigh and Minister Catherine Martin, at which... Shuni Rahali passed on the information or misinformed the minister, so to speak, as the minister would put it, and didn't pipe up and say, well, actually, that's wrong or whatever, despite the fact that he's the man who is now leading the charge of reform. So it does, once again, as we sort of said last week, (coughs) Mm. it calls into question this reform agenda and whether or not he is the guy to do it. Because you have now had it, in, on any basic level, the confidence in him, both within at a staff level in RTE, has been damaged by this. And then possibly more damaging at a government level, the confidence in him has definitely wavered a lot. Yeah, it's definitely he's not not wearing the same halo, I think, in government eyes that he had a couple of weeks ago because now we mentioned last week that there was a certain level of connection between him and the exit deals for Rory Coveney and Richard Collins, which the government isn't wild about. And now if he was you know, silent by, a sin by omission in not speaking up at those meetings last week. For what it's worth, I did ask RTE about that earlier this week because I put it to them that Kevin Backhurst sat beside the RTE chair and didn't pipe up to correct the record when the minister was being misinformed. Mm. And the gist of the statement I got back was that it was actually Kevin Backhurst who took the chair aside after those meetings and said, I think you've given her the wrong story there and prompted Shuni Riley to go back and check mm. the thing and therefore to change the record. So RTE are saying... Well, you know, he's not the interlocutor for the minister, but he was actually the one who got about setting the story straight afterwards. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, there is this now question and it'll be interesting to see in the couple of days ahead whether that cloud still hangs over Kevin Backhurst or whether people just decide that they now need to let bygones be bygones and try to move on about the whole thing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So have either of you ever heard of a drug called Lyrica? Yes, I yes. have. What do you know about it? Um, it's much like benzodiazepines mm-hmm. and zopiclones. It's one of a prescription drugs which causes a lot of alarm amongst people like the Analyphy Project mm-hmm. and Merchants Key, for example, in that it's rife for addiction yes. and for misuse and abuse. And it does often, you know, it's, it's often used in conjunction with people who are addicted to heroin, for example, mm-hmm. um, or people who use it and abuse it on its by itself. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it's all, street names were just like, remember it used to be called Budweiser's because it gave people a very sort of a buzzy sort of drunken sort a drunken of feel. drunken feel, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been an item of concern for a long time, but it's definitely back in the headlines at the moment. So it are, is. Are we shorting, just to, to put it to very base terms, are we talking about a heavy duty painkiller? 
essentially yeah, it is a heavy duty okay. painkiller that came into the Irish market back in 2004 um, so it's known as Lyrica it's also called a coffin drug they call it on the streets um, and it's also known as pregabalin so um, the reason it's back in the headlines is because toxicology reports over the last 10 years show that one in 16 toxicology reports so one in 16 deaths that have had a post-mortem in Ireland have shown that pregabalin was present in the person's in the person's bloodstream Wow! so which is quite shocking um, it is a very heavy duty painkiller that's what it was intended for when it came into the marketplace I'd say back in 2004 um, the types of things that you might be prescribed pregabalin for uh, would include things like treating epilepsy nerve pain and in some cases general uh, anxiety disorders um, so I suppose the thing about it is it's, it's quite readily available it's you know some people might even have it in their own cabinet and not even realise they have it they might have been prescribed it a couple of years ago maybe they took it once or twice and they've just happened to have it at home but um, coroners and doctors particularly doctors who work in addiction services are now calling for this to be um, to be a controlled drug to be classified as a controlled drug because of that high level of prevalence um, you know we were speaking with Dr Kieran Harkin who works in Merchants Key this week about it and he had been telling us that you know he is seeing people coming in every single week who are severely addicted to pregabalin Lyrica whatever you want to call it and that it's having a detrimental impact on people's lives um, it's very dangerous in terms of it's not a case that you know you can just come off it sort of cold turkey and decide to stop taking it tomorrow you know even to come off it in itself is it, there is a programme to come off the wow this type of drug um, but also you know the number of deaths linked to this now as a 1 in 16 toxicology reports in the last 10 years showing the presence of pregabalin in the bloodstream we were speaking with um, Alex Ormond so Alex is in recovery um, herself for drug addiction and she's been talking about pregabalin and the reason she wanted to come forward and speak about this actually is because she has lost two friends to pregabalin use over the last 10 years at, at both ends of the decade so uh, one friend who died very sadly back in 2014 and another friend who died just last summer and Alex actually found her friend dead in the bunk bed Alex was sleeping on the top bunk and her friend was in the bottom bunk and and she found her friend dead um, one morning in August of last year having taken pregabalin and I just wanted you to take a listen this is the moment she describes uh, finding her friend dead in her bed and I knew that the girl was in the bed underneath me and I just looked under and she was sitting in the same position that she had been sitting in when I came into the room and I didn't even go down the ladder I just jumped off the top bunk and grabbed her when I grabbed her she was stiff her I I put my hand on her forehead it was ice cold this is something I've gotten horrible nightmares about. I lifted her head and the whole middle of her face to here was black and the outside was blue and purple. So obviously rigor mortis had set in. Now, for whatever reason she was on them, she was on them for, I don't know, but um, maybe she took an extra one and didn't, think of the repercussions or the outcome but she's passed away now and I mean that's two friends now I've lost you know and it's people don't realise yeah you get this like superhero kind of a you know feeling from them like you can take on the world but you crash and 
when you crash, you die, you know, or, you're at, or else you're at risk of death, you know. And they're so cheap and so easy to get, which is amazing. It's just, it's a disgrace. So thank you so much to Alex who came down to chat to us about that today um, and she actually she's working or she's minding her mum full time as a carer and Alex is doing really well. Um, but you know she talks very openly about the fact that this you know this being so available you know she said you know you could get it on the street tomorrow or today mm. if you wanted it that the accessibility factor is huge here and I just want to take a quote here from Dr Eleanor Fitzgerald who I also spoke to who's the president of the Coroner Society of Ireland and she has said that the growing abuse of uh, Lyrica could lead to it becoming the next Oxycontin and anyone who's watched that TV programme Dope Sick will know mm. about Oxycontin mm. and the impact it's had on people's lives. Yeah I think that's one of the scary things about how it's being misused is the affordability of it in terms of street yeah. terms and the fact that, I mean, you talk about the one in 16 toxicology reports that it's found in, uh, in terms of people who have died in this country. If you actually count the amount of people who also have heroin or methadone in their mm-hmm. system, it's up to a third almost, I think it is, in terms of they also have pregabalin or Lyrica in their system as well. So this is how much it's used in conjunction with things. And it is. it does come at a time when there is concern about, particularly about overdoses we've seen since last year, both in Dublin and in Cork. Uh, I think it's nidazines, isn't it? That there's almost a synthetic form of heroin which is out there at the moment as well. So in terms of opioids and in terms of painkillers and other prescription drugs misuse, there is a bit of concern out there at the street at the moment. There is. Dr. Kieran Harkin said that they had contacted the Department of Health last year, uh, doctors working in addiction services, and they had put forward an extensive case for it to be changed to a controlled substance. So they said they contacted the HPRA, the HPRA said this is a Department of Health issue and the response they got back from the Department of Health was we're monitoring the situation which you know Kieran Harkin says just really isn't good enough. That's basically what you say is you're holding response to anything if you yeah. uh, if you have no actions up your sleeve. Like yeah. no we're monitoring the situation we we might act at some point in the future. Yeah and Alex Ormond when I put that to her today I said look the Department of Health has said that they're monitoring it you know she found that quite upsetting actually to hear that because she was like what is there to monitor you know you can see now that one in 16 toxicology reports have pregabalin in it you can see that people are dying and you know you can see that there's a huge prevalence in Irish society so what is there to monitor there really needs to be some yeah. sort of action on it to make it a controlled substance Richard will you be monitoring the forthcoming full-time vacancy at the FAI now that John O'Shea has been given only an interim appointment as the oh, new the data boss? is what I say to that do you know like I think about the FAI it's almost the Roman Empire I think about it multiple times every day both for League of Ireland reasons for you know men's national team women's national team and all these other reasons and one of the things which baffles me is that they didn't as soon as Stephen Kenny was out of the job appoint someone as an interim manager because it would have covered up a lot of the just wildness of the last few months where they've apparently been very close to appointing Lee Carsley mm. he didn't want the job they've been very close to appointing oh, Neil Lennon it. didn't want the job or that they didn't yeah. appoint Neil, Neil Lennon or that Chris Coleman was going to be Paul Im- Clement was immediately appointed yeah. didn't happen so they've had all this back and forth about who the new permanent manager is going to be and they've done the sensible thing at this point in time because we're in no rush we're not qualified for a World Cup or anything like that mm. appoint John O'Shea as an interim measure and that's at a time when there's a huge scrutiny on the FAI 
which we'll talk about in a second. It's a good <laughs> oh, decision. It's a good decision. People Clap. really like John O'Shea. Like yeah. his sound. People like him. They do. There's a big, big, big constituency of Man United Ireland fans who'll be delighted to see a, a Champions League winner. From a personality perspective, and I know nothing about soccer and never claimed to know much about soccer, but I think from a personality perspective, it's a good get. Yeah, you probably came across him once or twice when you were down at the Listen, and I tell you something, there's nothing more exciting when you're out in Waterford than John O'Shea being home for a weekend and being out in town and everyone going, John O'Shea's home for the weekend. They, they used town. to say actually that, <laughs> if you, love that. during his time in, with Man United, they used to say that if you're in the Stretford end that if you went down towards the tunnel and the players were going back in after their pre-match warm-up if you shouted up Ferrybank it was like some sort of secret code where basically he would stop and chat to you and, and stop for a picture in the way that others won't because it's just that that classic Irish thing if when you're on like Bondi Beach and you shout up leash and all the Irish heads yeah. turn around I shouted at him outside Croke Park once was I was a kid I don't know if he appreciated it because it was obviously a big crowd of people I was like John O'Shea yeah. uh, I was a teenager at the time so I'll excuse myself for that but yeah good appointment um, there's a couple of friendlies coming up which are mm-hmm. going to be broadcast on Virgin Media Television uh, but it's a decent decent news story for the FBI at a time they badly need one because the they're very much under the spotlight again The only thing that I think is a bit of a shame actually is that given as you said we've, we have no competitive games until the Nations League this coming autumn when you're having friendlies it's the point of friendlies not to allow a new manager to sort of Ready. tinker around no, with but like we don't have we, we aren't in a position to appoint one and we've been turned down by our main top target Lee Carsley unless but, he but comes but back the again The is why we've been turned down so many times I know yeah that's you know. the thing that's why we should have just it, had an interim manager. Is it because the FAI is so dysfunctional that apparently they have an internal culture where the CEO can jokingly say, wouldn't mind getting paid for my unpaid leave? And then lo and behold, it materialises a couple of weeks later. There's one man who would have been delighted to hear the scandal last Friday morning that Shuni Raleigh had resigned from RTE and that this was now the scandal occupying uh, the airwaves. And that would be Jonathan Hill, the CEO, because the FAI didn't have a great hell time at the Oireachtas Media Committee last week. Can I ask you, so if John O'Shea does interim manager, could he be made permanent eventually? Could, if yeah. Made, like if he wins, wins the friendlies, I don't think it's okay. going to happen, but it could well do. That's happened before where interim managers become permanent managers. Who yeah. was the best FAI manager, in your opinion, ever? Ireland manager ever? Jack Charlton. Jack Charlton. Jack Charlton. Okay, well, obviously, okay. Well, yeah, apart from Jack Charlton then. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, probably say, I'd probably say Mick, yeah. Who's the best oh, yeah. FAI chief executive in your lifetime? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I think this is something which genuinely I thought was quite telling about this, this thing at the PAC last week. Sorry, it wasn't the media committee. It was PAC yeah. last week where uh, Jonathan Hill, the chief executive, and other senior officials were in. Bear in mind, the FAI is in the middle of a government bailout right now. And one of the terms and conditions of that bailout is that the chief executive, the, the modern day successor to John Delaney, yeah. can only be paid the same and no more than the Secretary General of a government department. The FAI managed to accidentally blunder through that in 2022, it seems, when Jonathan Hill was paid for annual leave that he hadn't been able to take. And in paying him for that unpaid leave, it ran him over the official limit of what he was allowed to earn, which then resulted in the FAI's funding being sort of temporarily put on ice while they tried to get to the bottom of it all. And it it is worth just restating all of this because it's just so farcical. But it turns out that the apparent reason this all happened is that another junior member of staff was Mm. emailing senior management, Jonathan Hill being one of them, saying, uh, due to unexpected circumstances, I wasn't able to take all of my leave last year. Is there any chance of being paid in lieu of taking the holidays? Other people all reply in the email chain and say, yes, Jonathan Hill, although it's not his direct sign-off, says, yes, no problem. And then makes what he describes as a throwaway remark of, wouldn't mind having an arrangement like that for myself, well, exclamation mark, direct, question no, mark. Direct, we have to get direct quotes on okay, these things. So it's, it's, can you negotiate the same for me, please, just in case the FAI come back at us, you know what I mean? So that's what he said, okay. that was it. But this is all Can re- you negotiate the same for me, please? Yeah, question mark, mm. exclamation point or whatever. Um, and lo and behold, then he gets paid 
11 and a half grand yeah so the, the, the paying of, of over 11,000 euros which he's then paid back of course is of course, again yeah. worth worth saying but probably the most difficult point of all this for the for the FAI at a time of course as you say of a state bailout is the email chain and how that was produced to the committee mm. because the, the, they want to see Jonathan Hill's contention last year when this was first came out was that he didn't ask for this he didn't ask for to be paid for holidays that you didn't take so it's all being like, well, we'll need to see the emails here. But the emails they provided were completely redacted, mm. which, again, we're talking about RTE and the FAI. Transparency. Pat. Transparency, yeah, transparency and transparency and whatnot. Where they'd even redacted the name of the FAI and the email signatures. Like the only thing that was the left was the Twitter logo and the Facebook logo. They redacted um. the time and date and all this. And all of this was from the FAI's point of view. They said that they had legal advice because they wanted to protect the identity of the junior employee here. Um there's got to be a question mark about legal advice provided to people who are appearing before Oireachtas committees because it does get in the way of transparency here needlessly sometimes in terms of this. So they had no problem in reading out the emails for the record mm. and whatnot. But there is a big problem here in terms of when all of this came to light, I think Alan Dillon described it all as a cock and bull story about how this was all handled in terms of, oh, I didn't really ask for it and blah, blah, blah. It was a throwaway line in an email. There's, there are serious questions once again about the man in charge of the FAI and that is Jonathan Hill in this case. And of course, remember, he was appointed in the aftermath of John Delaney and one of the, you mentioned, you know, the pay cap that is basically there. He can't be paid more than the Secretary General of a department. John Delaney at one point was paid €400,000 per year. And to try and make sure that there isn't that culture of excess in the FAI that pay cap is there. But there also needs to be the scene, the FAI needs to be as clean as clean can be. Uh, and there are good things happening in Irish football at this point in time. And it is unseemly and it does go against that idea of the FAI is going in the right direction when the president of the FAI, Paul Cook, at that committee says that, yeah, my confidence in the CEO has been shaken by this. So, but this isn't, it's not, it's not great. It's not no. great overall for the FAI and it isn't gone away yet. Um, I know the FAI, of course, obviously we have to try and appoint a permanent manager. They also have to get a permanent sponsor for Maybe. men's national team as well. So, yeah, the FAI. But um, we do wish you the best luck, John, with the new job. And uh, we hope to see you on Waterloo. That'd be great. And you look at his yeah. success as live exclusive on Virgin Media Television next month. Not to go full old hairdresser, but have you sent a nice book for your holidays? Um, no, I have no holidays booked at the moment, actually. Have you? Oh, you're going to Rome, obviously. Yep. It's not a holiday. It's very much a... Kind of a working holiday, a working of holiday sorts. I guess. Yeah. Uh, you so you haven't got anywhere booked. Of course, no, you've got other things booked. lined yeah, up for the summer. Yeah, we've got things lined up for the yes. summer at the moment. Because uh, well, it turns out, why is it that Ryanair are now warning that uh, Ryanair, who were complaining about passenger caps, do you have a holiday in Dublin Airport? We have. We're not taking a plane. Going on the boat to France again. Oh, that's year. nice. You did that last worked, year. Worked out so well last year. Just why not do it again? That's yeah, cute. Yeah. Kids just I loved like it. Uh, but Ryanair are warning that the uh, price of a summer fare this year might be higher than otherwise expected because they were expecting to get more planes, Richard, and they ain't going to have them. Yeah, so Ryanair's warning the fares are going to go up by as much as 10% this summer. So the, the consumer advice, if you want to take some consumer advice out of this, is if you're going to book your summer holiday, book it now. Because A, there's a constriction in terms of the amount of planes that are available generally before this Boeing. So the Boeing thing is basically based on, you know that thing that happened earlier on this year yeah. where mm. the bit of the plane the fell the plane. off? Yeah over, it was Alaskan Airlines, wasn't it? Mm. Um, so because of that, there's an extra focus on Boeing and the amount of planes that they produce. Everything's going to be double and triple checked. So Air, Ryanair... Thing, surely. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But Ryanair's just not going to have enough planes then to do what it wanted to do over the summer. So demand is up. They have a lower amount of airplanes than they thought they'd have. So prices are going up. So this actually has been a focus or a, a fact of life since the end of the pandemic 
travelling restrictions is that there's been such a demand for holidays mm. at a time when there are very few planes for airlines to actually buy and now fewer and fewer and fewer. Mm. So now there's a real pinch on at the moment. Uh, so yeah, 10% increase in fares there. And if you're thinking that, well, maybe by this time next year, things will be better. There is such a backlog now in terms of getting planes Onto oh, the that's a fair point because, of course, Ryanair would be a very big buyer of planes, but they're not going to be the only people in the market trying to buy new fleet to try and add to the seats they've got available. So there's a good mm. chance it'd be a backlog for a couple of years now. Yeah, and the other knock-on on this as well is that there could be there's a risk as well that some flights over the summer could be cancelled, as in flights which people would have already booked at this point in time because mm. they expected to have more planes that they now won't have. Exactly. So yeah, this okay. this this was a sort of a, a, a sort of a third or fourth headline story earlier on this 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 week, but I think it's actually going to be something which yeah. might be. You know, quite a quite a story when it comes to summertime. Yeah, particularly because I suppose like I would be the kind of person who would definitely be a bit more of a last minute booking mm-hmm. kind of person, and like you know, I think people like me would probably be affected by this going through the summer. Absolutely, I think. yeah. Yeah, I think you're going to have to, given what's going on, I think you're going to have to be the kind of person who's a bit more organised about your holidays and deciding what you're going to do a bit further in advance. You can get better deals, but um. Yeah, I mean, I would I would generally be the kind of person who might decide within a three or four week window that I'd like to go take my holidays now and, you know, scrambling to get a flight sort of at a reasonable price. And mm. it's not as if like, you know, Ryanair has obviously marketed itself as being the low fares airline for a long time. But I think generally speaking, if you actually looked at the prices of flights um, since the end of the travel restrictions, they've all kind of gone up considerably anyway. Yeah. Like yeah. Ryanair is lower than other places and that's why it's going up by 10%. Other airlines are going to be up by like 5 or 6%. Mm-hmm. Cause it's coming from a lower base. But they're still dearer than they were five years yeah, ago. Yeah, I think there's something like yeah. there was a statistic that it, the airline fares are up by about 50% since the end of the pandemic anyway. Mm. Or based on, sorry, in comparison to pre-pandemic fares. Yes. They're up yeah. by 50% on it for uh, across the board. Yeah. So, a lot yeah. of which might just be, be fuel anyway, because fuel has gone up so much there in the last couple of five years. Anyway. And the way climate you know policy goes, this might be you know the the age of really really low cost travel on airways might be. I don't know. I've never it's been like you know you hear these stories who would get like a return flight for twenty euro kind of thing. Like I've never been that person. I've never have you guys uh, ever got? I've never gone on that flew. I actually had to go for a job interview in Newcastle, and the flights were one euro each way. And the book when was this? and the, the payment, like the credit card fee it was with Ryanair. It was, I'm going to say it was spring 2009. I was coming out of college and there was a job going in a multinational who had originally applied for their, their Dublin office and they didn't have any work in Dublin. 2009, jobs mm. were just where jobs were being created and then suddenly just removed everywhere. <laughs> but they had other jobs going in another sister office in Britain and those jobs were in Newcastle. And I flew over for a day to do an interview. And the four of us that were living together all booked flights over for the day because they were so cheap. The fares for the four of us to go over and back were eight euro collectively. Mm. But the booking fee, because it was credit card booking fees. Yeah, but like how do the airlines per, do that? It was though? a fiver per flight. So the, the, the credit card payment fee was 40 euro which is five times higher than the cost oh, of actually wow. taking the plane over and back to Newcastle for a day, which I thought was a little bit mad. But that is by, by far, by far the cheapest yeah. plane. I've yeah, ever. no, I've never, I've actually never, I've, I hear about these stories, but I've yeah. never actually experienced it yeah, myself. I think those days of those single figure, like less than 10 euros sort of thing, I think mm. those days might be on an end now at this point. Yeah. Uh, mm. If you can get cheap fares to any of Coventry Airport, Leicester, Sibson Aerodrome, Silwell Aerodrome, Bedford Aerodrome or Cranfield Airport, all of the um, aviation metropolises uh, of the Northeast Midlands uh, in Britain, uh, you will be able to go stalking one of this year's fab film locations, Sarah. Yeah, so what's happening with this? People are, are hanging around inside the Saltburn house. Basically, loads of TikTok influencers have now overrun Drayton House, which is in uh, Northamptonshire 
uh, in Northamptonshire. <laughs> yes, oh, well, I had to just make sure that I was remembering which one it was. Uh, the Grade One listed stately home called Drayton House has basically been mobbed uh, by people who like the look of the place on Saltburn basically and have decided to go a little bit Barry Keoghan not that they're dancing around in the nip but that they decided they'd quite like that please and I go around for a bit of a poke to the point where it seems that the manager thinks that the or the owner of the country mansion thinks the whole thing is a little bit weird and But have they the opened it up over. to the public no, or are they people no. just landing up there? People are just showing up Sorry, It's been described by the Daily Mail as the siege of Saltburn oh. all these people are going on and they're filming themselves dancing to like Murder on the dance floor. Murder on the dance floor or doing whatever. And also people have been posting online directions on how to get into the gaff as in how to get off public footpaths into the grounds. Because again, stately home, it's it's, it's private. It's private. So they're effectively in your garden and this guy, Sackville or whatever his name is, (laughs) this... Whatever his name is. This titled man. Charles Charles Stockford Stockford Sackville. Sackville, Yes, Mr. Sackville. He's probably not a mister, but he's a Sackville anyway. But he's basically said that he's like, how would you like it if you opened up your curtains one day and there was somebody filming a TikTok in your garden? Which I I mean, I get. Mm. I get. But this this is, you know, this is what drives the social media economy these days is, you know, is is creating content. Mm. The thirst for content and the thirst for content that does numbers mm. is pushing people over the edge. I just don't do get why you didn't just open it up and make it a tourist attraction like they do with the Downton yeah, Abbey house. It's, it's an idea. You have to live there as well. Uh, speaking of content right. though, people will have to be content with that amount because we're completely out of time. Uh, thanks to <laughs> oh, everyone dear. for sending all your notes. That was a segue and a half. Uh, we have a new email address. Uh, the group chat at virginmedia.ie is how you can get in touch. If you want to send us your thoughts about cheap flights you've had, uh, film sets that you'd like to go stalking, uh, or your concerns about the cost of living crisis, do let us know. The group chat at virginmedia.ie. Uh, until next time, thank you Richard. Thanks. Thank you, Zara. Thank you. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.